Yaya, Julia, wonderful to be with you both. We've got a wealth of uh, a background in the CIA and Treasury and the White House National Security Council to discuss uh, whether we need a digital dollar and the future role of central bank digital currencies. It seems that the U.S. dollar is at a critical inflection point and that we're in an era of dollar dominance. We've been stuck at this era since 9-11 and afterwards. And so, Julia, I want to start with you. How do we move from an era of dollar dominance to dollar innovation? Thanks, Michael. And it's a pleasure to be here today to chat about a very, um, a very crucial topic that sort of bridges between national security um, and financial policy. Um, you know, just to start out, I would say we've been in a in a period of um, undoubted um, uh, real benefit from the dollar in the Bretton Woods system in the interwar period and post 9/11, when uh, the dollar really became the, one of the principal tools at fighting uh, international crime and terrorist financing. Um, but things are changing, right? The global environment we've uh, we've opened markets up um, incredibly according to a U.S. model um, over the past 70 years, and other countries have certainly learned to benefit from that. And so as we move into a period of increasing digitization in the economy, of global growth, um, we need to enter a new period where um, you, you, the U.S. dollar becomes a force for, for U.S. innovation and for technology growth, and not just to preserve a, the sort of status quo that we have enjoyed for the past so, Yaya, does dollar innovation mean a digital dollar? I mean, we'll get to what China's doing and what other countries are doing, but should the United States react to move to a digital dollar right now? And is that good for the United States? Well, Michael, it all depends on how you assess you know, the world around you, what's happening. Um, I would frame it as the digital money, the format of digital money is changing. So it's not even necessarily about dollar innovation, it's about digital money innovation. You know, Previously, digital money has sort of been the purview of financial institutions, right? When we use PayPal or Zelle or Venmo. Um, now it is just the fact that there is a stretching of what's possible in terms of digital money. That's happening, whether the U.S. makes a policy decision to create a you know, account-based or token-based central bank digital currency, it's happening. So really, I think it's, you know, we have to frame, uh, we have to frame the problem, or we have to frame the situation, which is digital money is changing. And if we're going to operate in this new environment, we're going to have to do something that's maybe... Maybe at the end of this panel, we'll decide exactly what that is. <laughs> so, Julia, it seems to me that we're in a multipolar world and we are really entering a period of a basket of currencies where countries are retreating from the dollar. They're looking to go around the dollar at every turn. I've heard you say this in recent testimony on the Hill. Are we, can we live in a world where DeFi, Central bank digital currencies, a digital dollar, and stable coins live alongside each other in a future global digital wallet. Is that possible? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have to design it carefully, and the road there might not be easy. 
um, you know, I think, you know, to, to preface what you were saying, Michael, I mean, of course, you know, I'd also like to caution that the retreat from the dollar is, is, is it will be will be very gradual. Um, and that if you see the, whole, the international holdings of a dollar drop by a, a half a percent or something, so there should be no cause for alarm. I also don't necessarily think that um, that a, that uh, the emergence of strong uh, properly reg regulated currencies in a, alongside the dollar should be something to be discouraged, like the pound, the yen, the euro, for example. Um, so I think that the the framework, you know, we, we shouldn't paint a false dichotomy between saying, okay, we're going to have a CBDC and that leaves no room for stable coins, or that leaves no that no room for crypto, right? In in the the world that is emerging that we are trying to create for ourselves. There is ostensibly a role for a central bank digital currency, perhaps in direct payments between governments and individuals, um, for digital wallets in the form of stablecoin, as a fiat-backed stablecoin that uh, facilitates uh, retail payments, um, and then also uh, crypto as, as an investment vehicle. All these things are possible. So Yaya, to push you, 25 years ago, the dollar was at 75% global central bank reserves. Today, it's below 60%. I don't see any data pushing it up above 60 right now. It seems to be in a downward trend. So with that, has the United States become complacent about the dollar? Is complacency our kryptonite and our only alternative is to get on board with the 80 plus central banks that are developing a central bank digital currency right now? Well, you know, I think our moms always told us, you know, if someone were to jump off of a bridge, would you do it? And I think we always, you know, she was telling us that that wasn't the, the reason to do anything. Um, so I take the same, I think we should take the same approach. It, it may very well be that the United States should create, um, should launch a, a, a CBDC, but it shouldn't be because other countries are doing it. You know, it should really be because we have assessed like and I know we're going to talk about, um, you know, China and other countries, but you mentioned other countries. What are other countries doing? They're assessing the, the technology. They're assessing their currency. They're assessing the global economy. And many of them have decided that, oh, this sort of technical, this technological uh, innovation could allow us to do something that will help our currency, our economy, et cetera. I think the U.S. needs to do the same. We have to get away from the, this um, dichotomy, like Julia said, of, oh, it is this type of CBDC or, or it is nothing and it's just you know, crypto stable coins. That's not the policy posture. The posture should be let's assess it um, and let's not see the legacy, the status quo of digital money uh, be intrinsic, right? It, 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 uh, or sort of in perpetuity that that's going to be the way things are. So, Julia, it seems, though, that the United States is a proactive country, but it seems that we have been admiring uh, what other countries are doing. And the Fed's supposed to come out with a white paper uh, this month or early next month about the usefulness of a digital dollar versus stable coins. For the first time in a long time, I'm seeing a great debate at the Fed between Lael Brainerd pushing a digital dollar, Randy Quarles in his great parachute pants speech pushing stable coins. Is there a point in the middle? And why is the United States admiring other countries' rise right now? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I think um, you could say we're ad admiring the problem, but also we, the United States bears a very particular role in the global economy as the global reserve currency. 
Um, it's a very different story if you are a, um, a small island economy looking at um, a digital inclusion and financial inclusion um, and your, um, you, you know, your GDP is a couple billion dollars a year. I think, so that's, so I think that the, the caution that some members of the Federal Reserve, Chair Powell, uh, first and foremost, is, um, is not to be directly criticized. But on the other hand, um, as you say, the, the U.S. has always been at the forefront of financial regulation, um, and it shouldn't it shouldn't um, give that role over to other countries that might um, create um, create a, a framework um, and design structure for central bank digital currencies that do not work in the U.S. interest or of the global financial sector at large. So, if you um, so the U.S.'s role. Should not, as, as DIS says, not necessarily to jump in the, into the deep end and say we're going to have a central bank digital currency as soon as we physically can, but to uh, create um, new fora to, to develop standards that are globally applicable. And this is, uh, you know, we would argue with the Atlantic Council first and foremost in the G20 format um, to, um, to develop these standards before, um, before, the, before the, it's a little bit too late. And, and um, the uh, and, and other other models have uh, have have gone far enough that we cannot uh, pedal backwards. So, yeah, yeah. Speaking of our allies, it seems that we're in an era of a new digital asset foreign policy. You have authoritarian governments like China, Russia, Iran. We've seen what Belarus is doing in the last couple of weeks, using central bank digital currencies for control to understand the consumer at every turn, where you then have other central banks like Sweden or allied countries of the United States trying to use CBDCs for equity, for inclusion, to promote the consumer. Talk about what China is doing and are they creating a precedent for other authoritarian countries to follow? I think, you know, um, what China is doing should be framed as less a currency issue, which is how we're, how most most of the public is talking about it, and more of a data issue. So if, if we think if, if the stance is going to be oh you know uh, the digital yuan versus the dollar, of course the digital one you know will not win. You know that's that that's actually not really the issue. And I don't think China, from sort of uh, you know my looking at it, over at the, um, the Center for New American Security, we produced a, a, a report on the digital currency, and I think on China's digital currency, and we assess that China is playing a different game or strategy with this project. It's really trying to develop a digitized economy, and it's trying to lay down infrastructure where the government can capture financial data in a way that it can't with the current infrastructure where Alipay and WeChat and those and the companies behind them can't really do not provide direct access of data uh, data access to the government. So China is trying to create this new infrastructure and collect more data and analyze it and uh, I would say it would um, support digital authoritarianism. And so that's the way to see it. And then there's also maybe the competitive advantage, right? As China is able to collect, as the government is able to collect more data, it can innovate with the data. And I think we should see that China is sort of operating under the idea, the, uh, the idea that the nation with the best data wins. I think that's, that's how it sees its pursuit of the CBDC. So Julia, on that point about data and obviously cyber is being a huge tool used right now, do we need a new national security strategy in the United States 
the last one highlighted great power competition. We all know great power competition. Do we need to be more strategic about the US dollar rather than seeing it as a long-term threat, admiring that down the road? Should it be seen in a short and medium lens for the United States to actually be proactive given what Yaya just said about China? Um, yes. Um, and, but I think that these, it's very, it's something that's much more easily said than done. I've been part of the drafting process for national security strategies. It's uh, sort of a catch-all process where, um, where everybody feeds in a little bit and what comes out the sausage-making process is always a big compromise. It is very hard, um, and I'll say this as a sort of a structural issue as someone who works at economic statecraft. This is the intersection between finance, economics, and national security. Both of us uh, sort of work in this space that to frame economic and financial issues within a national, using national security language, okay? And the, it's what, what makes it so nice to be able to speak with a community like you guys today, because I, you know, I've grown up in the, in the Washington national security framework, is to, is to understand the role that financial markets play in national security going forward. I almost feel sometimes, and I don't want to be alarmist when I say this, especially with Department of Defense colleagues around, but it almost feels like financial market integration is the new nuclear deterrent, right? And how do you manage that appropriately um, with, with cross-border transactions and geopolitical tensions? And so I think, you know, I don't necessarily think it has to be framed in terms of the dollar itself, but understanding um, and being able to speak capital markets language in the halls of the Department of Defense. And I'm, it's, it's hard. So, Yaya, back to China. It, it seems there's a consensus in Washington that China's far off from internationalizing the digital one. They haven't been able to change Belt and Road into digital one yet. They haven't been able to uh, really change SWIFT. Uh, they haven't been able to have cross-border contracts. Why are we waiting for China to internationalize? Why are we waiting for China to make improvements rather than us fix our own plumbing here in the United States? I, don't, I wouldn't say that we're waiting for China, to, we being US policymakers. I think you know, there's a good contrast that you're pointing out, which is America, we have a very complex system, our democratic system. It's not so easy, uh, right, to lay out a top-down strategy. I mean, even, you know, maybe even getting back to the idea of the national security strategy idea, um, when it comes to finance, right, it's not, you know, it's not our thing to implant this, hey, this is the direction we're going to go, and then everyone fall in line. That is a Chinese Communist Party uh, methodology, right, uh, how you structure the economy. And that's actually what we see happening. So what we're seeing, while we're, I won't say we're twiddling our thumbs, right? I'm not going to say that about uh, you know, U.S. policy or the U.S., but while we're like, having discussion papers that might come out in a few weeks about a CBDC, like our first uh, white paper, right. um, China has already assessed the strategic direction of the economy. It has done research for several years on digital currency. It has produced just 
pilots, white paper, and now it is slowly, you know, trickling down into the rest of the economy, the financial sector, big banks, small banks, and they're sort of falling in line. And so it's not that we're waiting for them, but they are positioned differently. We have to figure out what's the U.S. approach to innovation. So, Julia, on that point, since the United States is in the white paper phase, and we all know what happens when things go to committee and things go to white paper, usually not that much action in the short term. Does the United States need to convene a new digital asset Bretton Woods, where even if the United States isn't ready yet to create a digital dollar, and we're a couple years off, we can convene the EU key allied central bank governors, New Zealand, Sweden, Japan, and create a new digital asset framework. We're all sitting here today, and there's no guardrails regulatory-wise yet for the digital asset space. Everyone's yearning for it. Shouldn't the United States convene that group under a new digital asset, Bretton Woods? I think it could be useful. Um, I don't know necessarily know if the if if uh, using the term Bretton Woods is sort of putting putting a putting a stamp on uh, the uh, a stamp on the format, especially because. Uh, certain aspects of uh, of crypto and of the AML CFT framework are being discussed in the Financial Action Task Force already. There are already G7 working groups under the Finance Minister's track to discuss these things, right? So, um, but I think um, I, I think Michael, I think you're right in the sense that we can develop uh, a growing consensus first among uh, partner nations who have a similar conception of the balance between privacy and regulation and free markets. Um, and that's uh, that. That's ultimately that. That's ultimately the, the bread and butter right there. So Yaya, speak, speaking of privacy, uh, there's fear in the United States that if the United States creates a digital dollar, it will follow the China's model, mm-hmm. and that after 9/11, the Patriot Act used a lot of uh, you know power to gain information about Americans. Yeah. How can the United States create a balance? where it promotes the consumer, it promotes privacy, it promotes inclusion. Is that possible? And what type of framework would you envision around that? Everything is possible right now because we're at the stage where CBDCs are being fleshed out. There is no one size fits all. There's no one way that you know everyone thinks is, is the way to go. Everything is really on the table. Um, and so that's why it's important for in the US for, for, for policymakers and the, the private sector to actually be asking that question. What does it look like? I mean, I'll let you know that um, recently, I don't want to get too technical, but recently there was a paper, an academic research paper, it came out of the university in Germany um, about how you could have a CBDC and have cash-like privacy. Right. That's sort of it's not really a policy question. It's a technical question. So we may say policy wise, oh, a CBDC has to you need to have a level of privacy. But then you need people to actually do the work and technically figure out the computer science of doing that. And there are people that are doing that. So we need to but we have to sort of get more in the game. That, I mean, that's an academic paper. Um, I don't know if if uh, hopefully our U.S. policymakers have, have read it since I got it. I've read it. I sent them the email. I've read it. Oh, you read it. I, so. read, I read all your stuff. <laughs> uh, Julia. Let's pick up on, back on privacy. So how do you envision the digital dollar working for the consumer? How would it work for all of us? Mm. Isn't all of our banking already digital? Uh, what does it mean for commercial banks? Will we need an act of Congress? Uh, what do you think 
about the consumer, is this good for the consumer? Or is this good for central banks because of responsive China? Mm. So Those are all a bunch of diff different questions. And I think it, the, the answer is that it really depends, right? You have to, the, the, um, the ability of a, the, of a CBDC, and this is a question that, you know, that, uh, that both of us received in our testimony in July in House Financial Services, was how do you actually reduce the cost of transaction essentially to nothing for, um, for underbanked or unbanked sectors of the population, those who um, did not receive their CARES Act checks um, in time, those who, um, who defaulted on, on loans as a result of, uh, of friction in the payment system. Now, I mean, I think, Michael, you're, you're, you're correct to say there are improvements that can be made in commercial banking that would, I think, um, uh, f maybe take that role as well, right? And so um, there, what we also like to emphasize is that there is, again, not to create, in not creating this false dichotomy is that central banks are, would never be able to, um, to implement this um, by themselves, right? They don't have the personnel, they don't have the technology, um, they don't have the client interface. And so um, the design of a central bank digital currency would, at least in the United States model, you know, assess, um, but de facto uh, require um, cooperation with the private sector, which is a huge opportunity. So, please, yeah. Can I, I just wanted to jump into uh, on on the issue because I, I, I want to get like maybe give a, an example of because like, you had asked before about the framework like what it, what it should look like so practically all of the CBDC most of the CBDC papers out there say that the government would not necessarily have direct access in real time to transactions but here's the question right all paper, all of these proposals do say that for AML CFT reasons they'll be able to get this information so here's a here's a practical issue. So how do we manage the fact that government doesn't have access to your transactions, but let's say they can, let's say eventually they do, and let's say it's for someone, let's say a bad guy went to your store, you own a store, bad guy went to your store, and they get now not only his data, but your data. Now that they've unmasked you, what do they do with that data? You're not the suspect, but now it's in their, you know, their database. How do we have? So this is a policy question yep. and it's a technical question. These are like the practical. And questions. this came up after 9/11 with Swift and uh, Julia, as you know, we all tracked uh, terrorist financing. So uh, that's become a key issue, right? So does a digital dollar make it easier for the United States to track terrorist financing? Is that what are the illicit finance? Uh, implications. As we know, uh, terrorist financing moves outside of banks more than it does inside of banks right now. So what does it mean for uh, those implications? Mm. I actually think that it provides an increasing incentive for illicit financial actors to leave the formal financial system. Because um, I think this is, a, this is a conversation that we were having in, I guess, in the context of China and saying, well, won't the Chinese you know, des design this or use this with the purpose of evading US sanctions? Now, if I were, if I were a, a money launderer, um, I would absolutely not <laughs> use, uh, use a system that, regardless of the, designs, the design choice implemented, provides greater oversight into, into where, where the money's moving, right? There are very good ways to, uh, to launder money um, without a CBDC. Um, but I think, you know, I think you touched the nail on the head here in the sense that U.S. authorities currently have, um, have to go through a sort of due, di so due diligence subpoena process to have access to financial data that is possessed by or held by a commercial entity. Um, with the with the CBDC, there is a, there is a potential that there would be direct access by the central bank. 
that's not necessarily true, right? There could, um, we were talking about act of Congress, right? Most people believe that there would have to be a sort of amendment to the Federal Reserve Act to be able to implement a CBDC. You can write in um, uh, privacy and consumer protections into that. So, Yaya, moving forward, it seems that there's a lot of competition right now within the digital asset space, that stablecoins have one narrative, CBDC have the other narrative, uh, Ethereum is pushing its own narrative and others. What is the argument you see where stablecoins and uh, a digital dollar can coexist, given, like we saw during COVID, getting payments to people quicker, a stablecoin couldn't do that. So can't they coexist? Yeah, there's not going to be one coin to rule them all necessarily, one digital currency to rule, to rule them all. And I think the reason why that's that would be the case, the reason for coexistence, doesn't say which one would be prominent or most prominent, but the reason for coexistence is simply because you can't put the technologies in, back into the bottle. And so even as regulators figure out, as, as the U.S. decides, okay, we're going to go with the CBDC or we're going to regulate stable coins in this way. Um, even as we do that, I don't think there's anything we can do to say stop cryptocurrencies from existing. They're, 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 that just doesn't exist. So I think the world we are going to see is one where these different formats of digital money exist. Some of them will be will have certain use cases. Some of them some of them may become less prominent, or their uses will shift. Maybe stablecoins once they get more regulated, they're going to be used for a specific thing. Maybe Bitcoin is going to use, be used for a specific thing. Maybe more people will be using CBDCs, but I think they will all exist to different degrees. So, building on that, Julia, you know that I follow the art market very closely, and. I think that speaking of markets, the art market has truly legitimized digital assets uh, in the last couple of years. And we've seen how it's playing out. How do you envision markets like the art market using a digital dollar? Won't it be easier? Won't the compliance costs and others be less because it's a digital dollar and it's governed by the central bank? It's, uh, it's, it's possible. But do you think... I mean, but, but maybe I'll, I mean, not to, I mean, I, I know you're the moderator here, but to put it back on you, <laughs> ask you. right? Yeah, exactly. I'll ask you a question. I mean, do, do, uh, do, uh, do holders of, of, uh, of, um, of physical assets of value actually see, I mean, obviously there's frictionless movement of, of payments um, and potentially a greater transparency in the providence of a, is that, that's where you're going with, but do you actually see that taking off? Well, I think that when it comes to the art market, reputational risk is everything. And so these auction houses want to make sure they know where it's coming from. And I, don't, I think they don't always know the beneficial owner, as we've discussed. And so I think if there's a system where they can use a digital dollar and there's a, a framework in place, you could see more of a surge in art sales uh, because of that, because it's quicker cuts faster. So I think it's going to have to be part of whatever framework comes is speed, efficiency, but also protection. Uh, but yeah, yeah, one thing that I want to touch on with you is predictions. And do you envision the digital dollar becoming a political issue where this could be on the debate stage in the next presidential election? Hmm. I don't know if that would ruin the ratings of debates if they're talking about CBDCs uh, by then. 
Um, so I'm going to say, actually, I'm going to take a different tack. So the CBDC could be a political uh, debate issue. I could actually see it. But you know what may be more prominent? Something we haven't mentioned, which I should have. The idea of digital ID. Digital ID, digital identification, like a national ID, is something that probably has to happen for a lot of this stuff to work. A lot of the CBDC stuff, a lot of the privacy stuff, a digital identity. And that's something that we don't have in the United States. A lot of countries are trying to figure it out. So I can imagine a world where maybe, you know, we figure out we want a CBDC, but then we figure out, oh, well, we kind of, maybe we need to have a digital ID to make it work. And I could see that being a huge debate issue and a, a, uh, a provocative, uh, controversial one. But hard to imagine that being necessarily partisan, right? I mean, I think that that's because I think we see in the regulation of the digital space, even if you're talking about antitrust or taxation, right? There are different coalitions um, that are not Democrat or Republican necessarily. So, I, you know, it'd be hard to, I mean, whatever it's coming up on the debate stage would be very interesting. I think for me, I see the, the, um, the question about um, government-sponsored finance versus private enterprise being the way that it's framed. So last lightning round question, we have around a minute and a half left. Yeah, yeah. So we're at the Beijing Olympics and we've got the, the digital asset, you know, award ceremony. Okay. And right now, would you consider that the gold medal in the digital asset space goes to Beijing and you've got probably Sweden, given their work on central bank digital currencies, are they getting silver? And then you have perhaps... Um, the euros getting bronze. How do we help the United States not be in the stands watching this ceremony and get on the medal stand? Understand that we're in the trials right now. So we have to show up. We have to show up to the trials, figure out where, you know, where we want to focus and, and what our uh, training regimen uh, would be. But we, we just have to, I think, realize that the games are going on. That's step one. Julia? <laughs> <laughs> I like the metaphor. Um, I, I, I agree that we need to put our imprint on this now. I'm not necessarily concerned that next year if China pilots a, uh, a CBDC at the Beijing Olympics for limited trials, um, that it is any imminent, uh, imminent threat to, the, to U.S. personnel who are there um, or to the potential for uh, the United States to leapfrog. Julia, yeah, yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.